Welcome to the question and answer portion of this podcast. My name is Joshua Daniel. I'm an Episcopal priest at St. Columba's in Washington, D.C. The questions for, for this section come from members of the Dismantling Racism class. The audio is sometimes a bit difficult to make out, but hopefully this is a valuable addition for those of you wanting to go a bit deeper into the material. Let's begin. Um, okay, Patty says the trouble was the idea of original sin. I couldn't buy that. Patty, could you, I, I'm guessing that was a comment about sin in the very beginning. Could you say something more about that? Um, well, basically the idea that people are, people are, not I mean, the idea that there's something wrong with people morally. Yeah. Yes. But was hard for me to accept. I mean, now I accept it. Now it's that I'm older. It's like, yeah, we're in a fallen state. <laughs> yeah. The idea that people who seem to me, you know, to be hardworking and decent were like, they're they're going to hell. I found that disagreeable and counterintuitive. Yes, thank you. And I would just say that in um, Mark chapter 3, at the very end of chapter 3, when Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my mother, brother, and sister, you know, he didn't have in mind this kind of universal faith that we all participate in, no matter what you say or believe. You know, that's a that's a very modern, you know, um, uh, 20th century pluralistic people who are like, you know, visiting other people other people's countries, which, which you just didn't do. But that concept is like deeply subversive to what makes somebody a Christian in our sense. Oftentimes we think about what makes somebody a Christian is that they know all the right words. That is, that is specifically what Jesus is rejecting there. Just because you go to your local synagogue, just because you make the right sacrifices, just because you're born in the right family, that does not put you in the kingdom of God. It's doing the will of God, like a larger thing. Um, yeah, so other thoughts. Um, I, I would like like uh, expand um, problems with Mark, things that you love about Mark, um, things about the, this, the class so far that have been helpful or not helpful. Um, I really would like to have about 15 minutes of just um, uh, talking, sharing, and then I'd like at the end to do a little bit of um, meditation with the with the passage, kind of putting ourselves there imaginatively. <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, I have a comment about original sin. Oh yeah, please, Jim. I always thought, or I have come to believe, I believe that original sin is selfishness. Okay. And yeah. Because if you think about a baby. Newborn, if you're born with original sin, if they don't scream and cry, you're not going to feed them, and they will die of starvation. So they're born with this, this instinct for survival, yeah. this selfishness. And then as they grow older, you teach them not to be so selfish, but think for others around around them. So that's always been my understanding of the original. Sin. I love it. I love it. But why would that be sinful to have an instinct for survival? Well, that's so, not in but it's the selfishness of it. You don't care what your mother is doing. She may not have slept for 10 hours and you're hungry. You're going to cry and get hungry. You know, it's the selfishness that is the original sin. Yeah. And it starts when they're born because, and because of the survival. 
but as we grow older, we broaden, um, you know, what we think of other people and how we can't consider other people. That's just in my yeah. personal experience of it. It's an interpretation of the selfishness as if they were doing something to another mother. And instead of my children had me up all night doing something to me. <laughs> 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 right, they were just trying to survive. Yeah, okay, yes, Jan, please. Can we have a little historical context of Mark? Yes. Awesome. Is he aware of those and therefore just Perfect. Great. So I, I am not a New Testament scholar, um, and, and a lot of what happens here is um, partly well, wellly ingested material that I am putting before you. Um, and, and when we get to uh, a date and time and the kind of uh, how it was written, those are like I know enough to know how scary <laughs> those topics are. But, but generally, let me say that um, Mark is often believed and is widely accepted to be the first gospel that was written. That does not mean it was the first thing in the New Testament written. Um, Paul very likely wrote before Mark, and a lot of Mark, some scholars think, is a response to Paul. Um, especially in some of the apocalyptic imagery that Mark uses. Um, uh, um, but Mark is, and part of the reason that I think that Mark was written before the other Gospels is that Matthew and Luke very clearly draw from Mark. Um, uh, a, a lot of what Mark uh, used is used oftentimes verbatim or changed for their own specific purposes. But um, there are and how does this, there's like a Venn diagram for this, um, but there is not anything in, it, it, it looks like Mark was the first thing that was written. And um, where uh, uh, it, it's very hard to tell. So for instance, Mark oftentimes doesn't have a great, does anybody, does anybody know a lot about this? About like uh, Mark, um, yeah, Patty, please. I don't know a lot, but I did take a course with Martin Smith years ago, and I think Mark was written like, I think it might have been 70 years after Christ's death, but yeah. it was written at a time when there were still living witnesses. Right, yes. So I, I just looked it up on my phone, and it said he, ah. knew, he, knew, he knew Paul and he knew Peter. Yes. So yes. And his, his actual name was John Mark. Mark was his last name. That surprised me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he had a connection. Wait, who is this? Peter, that to me is Barbara. Yeah, Barbara. Can I tell you a funny story? So one of the first one of the first times I was teaching philosophy, I started off. It was like an intro philosophy course, and I and I always started philosophy with what is philosophy, you know? And I just make them squirm, you know, partly because like I was twenty, you know, but I was like, what's philosophy? And people would say. Oh, it's like a way of life. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of like a way of life. And it would go on and on. And then one time, one student goes, have you ever thought about looking in a dictionary? <laughs> I was like, 
I know what like I know what philosophy is. Um, I'm trying to get to like what do you think philosophy is? But um, yes, so uh, yeah, there's uh, John Mark is like a common thought about that that Mark was actually um, John Mark that is referenced in other first century manuscripts. Um, John Mark would have been someone who did ministry with um, um, Paul, but was perhaps a disciple of Peter. Um, so just a couple a couple. Uh, uh, removed from the beginning. Uh, the reason that a lot of people think that Mark was written before um, 70 um, CE uh, is that there is no reference to the destruction of the temple, um, which is something that is very um, uh, substantially written about in the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke and John, um, I think, and John. Uh, and so that there's no mention of the destruction of the temple, um, it, it would be hard to think that that wouldn't be a, a very significant event for a Jewish religious community that the author would would address. So that's a um, great question. Uh, yeah, Karen. Karen, I, oh, there, there you are. Hi, we can see you. Yeah. And so I didn't underline a lot of things, but this number four, I did underline the baptism of repentance. Oh, thank you. John did baptize in the wilderness, and well, this is my version. I'm probably not the version you're looking at, and preached the baptism of repentance yes. for the remission of sins. And what I wrote in here was I looked up repentance, oh. regret. Remorse, which sounds really depressing. And then I wrote in the margin, whose sins? Whose sins are we talking about? Are we repenting other people's sins? Are we repenting our own? And I just wanted to flag that verse, especially in light of your opening intro about this notion of sin. And I'm also reading a book right now called Jesus and John Wayne about evangelical, the rise of evangelicalism in America. And one of the, the issues that's troubling me is this idea of judgment yeah. of others is responsible for that. And so I think that's why this verse four stuck out for me. And when you open with this like laser-like focus on this notion of sin, right? I, my eyes were really drawn back to this verse. So I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that in the context of your understanding of Mark and the focus that you're putting on this whole um, series. Yes, Karen. If you remember the kind of like general outline that I gave about uh, Jesus calling the disciples, um, uh, de de deconstructing, um, dismantling systems of oppression, and then pausing to teach. Um, 13 is the, 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 the apocalyptic second half um, teaching section, uh, which is full of um, wars and, um, and uh, trials. But what did you have in mind specifically, uh, David? 
No, I was just saying, I thought you had just said that the reason they date uh, marked before 70, that the temple was destroyed in 70, right. was because um, it doesn't refer to destruction of the temple in Mark, but it actually does in, in the chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, what do you have in mind? Which verse? Oh, it's, um, uh, they're, they're coming out of first thirteen one. It says, um, and he came out of the temple, one of his teachers, side was saying, look, teacher, with large stones and look, large buildings, and Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All oh. will be thrown down. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, great. Thank you, David. Um, and Karen, thank you. Wonderful questions. Um, I, I have my own view of both of them, but does somebody want to take a swing um, I, at it? I would like, oh, excuse me. Yeah, Lena, please. I would like to make a comment on Mark. Yes. Uh, um, I remember from reading Acts of the Apostles, and I just looked it up, and John Mark is named in the Acts, Acts of the Apostles as an assistant accompanying Paul and Barnabas, traditionally he is regarded as identical with Mark the Evangelist, the traditional writer of the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, thank you for and, that. And he, he and um, Paul, or Barnabas, they, they got into a fight, and so they went their separate ways. Yes. So it doesn't, yeah. But, yeah. but he did... So the, the question was that Paul and, and Mark know each other. If if it's if the um, Paul did know a Mark, and people traditionally think that this is the Mark that wrote the gospel. Yes. Yeah. So getting back to the religious text here. Yeah. Um, what would be the understanding of the text? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, um, uh, part of part of the way my understanding is of um, understanding how to understand ancient texts is like, what does the author spend a lot of time doing? That tells you perhaps what is of concern to that community, and that John's okay. So in the next couple of chapters, John's disciples appear all the time. For instance, they're fasting. Um, uh, very likely that there was conflict or tension between the followers of Jesus and the followers of John over issues about fasting. And here Mark is using the voice of Jesus to solve that particular problem, right? Um, and so uh, clearly uh, John was a really important figure for the community that was living then. We don't get a lot about John. Interestingly, in a very kind of cinematic fashion, John reappears as a flashback in chapter six when we get the entire trial of John. And I didn't put that into my like um, the 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 stages, but the um, the passion is another stage, and the trial of John in some ways mirrors the trial of Jesus. Um, so, John talks about baptism as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's going on there? We don't get a lot. We don't get a lot. Um, I've got my own theories. <laughs> and, and so if we look, and we're going to look very closely in chapter 6, 
where we get the most about what Mark thinks John is up to. And there, John is calling out Herod for his um, forms of oppression, um, specifically for the crowds, which the crowds is a term that Mark uses to, to describe the general anonymous poor. And so I think there's a lot of reason to think that what aligns Jesus and John is this, um, uh, this fundamental reordering of taking the poor from the periphery and bringing them back into the center of the heart of God. So if that's right, Sharon, um, repentance is not repentance for a baby keeping a mother up. Thank you, Tinan, or or um, any number of uh, uh, my teenage self um, uh, afraid that I had um, uh, uh, defaced myself by being attracted to a woman, <laughs> um, uh, but is the uh, systematic marginalization of poor people from God is repent is a baptism of repentance. Um, John is involved in the same. Um, reordering of uh, 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 the the powerful who have kept the poor away from God. Yeah, David. Yeah, so I, I completely agree that the largest group that the sinners probably refer to is the poor, but I think for me it's better to easier to understand as instead of poor, I think of social exclusion because that would include the poor, it would include the tax collectors, it would include lepers and all the purity issues and women who are you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And what's what's great about the first half of Mark, well, so interestingly, the second half of Mark, the um, the ethnic prejudice doesn't come out as much. And the geography there, I think, is partly to, to blame. Um, when Jesus is traveling around Galilee, we get into Hellenized areas, even uh, in um, what's called Samaria or Galilee. But the second half of Mark is Jesus going to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the heart of, uh, of uh, uh, Judea, right? Anyway, there's just the the ethnicity becomes less, it becomes more monolithic. But David, that's a great point, and you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right that Jesus is isn't interested just in the poor, but in, in a lots of different types of marginalized groups. One is the um, uh, the the pagans those who have been Hellenized, the Seraphonician woman who has no malady, her daughter's sick, but she herself has no malady other than being not Jewish or not Judean. Um, and then people who have been ostracized for purity. And that, we're going to talk a lot about purity next week. That's great. Let me get back to your comment about the destruction of the temple in chapter 13. Um, what is the, What temple is Jesus talking about? He's in, in, in 13, he is, he is in Jerusalem, he, in the, and Mark tells us that Jesus is, they are literally looking at the temple. Um, they're looking at the temple, and if anyone's been uh, to Jerusalem, somebody who said that they were interested, I don't think they ended up coming, is a professor of pastoral theology in St. George's St. George's College, Jerusalem. I was really hoping she would come, uh, maybe next week. Um, but uh, I think there we have Mark using high symbolism once again. 
And Jesus says, look at those big stones. And these stones are the Herodian stones that are like, I can't remember, 20 tons, 16 tons. I mean, they are mind-boggling big for a people that did not have pneumatic machines. Um, and Jesus is saying, uh, look at those stones. Um, um, the destruction of my body is, is this. Um, he, he's talking about the destruction of himself and not the actual temple. But he's also talking about the destruction of the temple in that the, the, the temple is a corrupted, um, maligned place. And it, is, it has been um, defaced. Uh, it has been defiled. It has been defiled by the actions that we will talk about in the second half, if you guys stick around with me, um, in the spring, um, when Jesus says, you have taken the widow's money. You've taken the widow's money um, and you've put it into um, the buying of bigger property and bigger stones. And you have destroyed the temple and those effects. But unlike Matthew and Luke, when it's talking about the temple, and it seems like it's, it's the uh, Romans actually came in with the, the, the tanks and rolled over it. I think what's happening here is, is much more symbolic. I, I, I'm saying I think that that is what scholars tell me is, is a very good uh, uh, interpretation. But thanks for going. And let me, let's keep going on this one, David. I'm not trying to shut you down. Yeah, let's keep talking. Let's keep talking. Awesome, awesome. Okay. I have a question. Yeah, Don. Hi. Good, hi. good to see you. Um, so you hi. So you said something about repentance being connected to the systemic marginalization, marginalization of the poor and others. So who is repenting in that scenario? Um, okay. Yeah. Great question, Don. Uh, in my mind, what, what I will try to kind of systematically build a case for um, is that uh, Jesus is asking, that is a great question. Um, the, the, the targets that he specifically uh, calls on would be like the Pharisees and the scribes. Another class of people he calls the Herodians. Um, and the Herodians very likely is just... Uh, a stand in for the kind of aristocratic landowning class. Um, but I think, I think that really there is to call it naturalistic is so misleading is very misleading. But I also want to say there is, is something close to a naturalistic presentation of what faith is in the gospel. And that is, um, true justice, true worship of God is shown in a worshiping community's ability to bring in the marginalized back into the heart of their community. Um, the poor, the sick, the unclean, um, uh, um, and uh, well, the unclean both in physical malady and also spiritual malady, and we're going to talk about that a lot in chapter 5. Uh, but th that's, that's who I think is being called to repent, is, is the people who have... Um, so, for, And we're going to talk about this again a lot next week when we talk about purity and debt. Um, debt is another word for sin. So if you think about the old version of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debtors, that's actually a much more literal interpretation 
of what Jesus is asking for because in Palestine, um, uh, forgiveness usually forgiveness was often that these poor farmers didn't have enough to pay their tithe to the temple system, and thus they were in debt, thus they were sinful. Um, and, and Jesus is saying that system is merely a perpetuation of the powerful elites. It has nothing to do with God. Anyone involved in that system needs to repent. And so the, the masses who were showing up to the Jordan, yep. or wherever they were, yes. um, those were not the Pharisees uh, described. Probably not. I mean, we can't yeah. say yeah, that. They were, they were the masses, and they were confessing their quote-unquote sins. Maybe they maybe it was the deaths, the tithes. Sorry, that's a great point. That's a great point, Don. The only thing, let me think about. I'm, let me think about that. Um, I, I really okay. like that. Um, the th the first thing that comes to mind is that um, as you all are reading through Mark, and like I'm just gonna keep saying it. Please, please, please try uh, and see if this schema kind of helps you get further into it. Um, notice when. Mark talks about the crowds. Um, uh, the crowds are always pressing in on Jesus. In chapter 4, um, the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, the crowds come together so much so, so densely, that the, Jesus and the disciples can't eat. Um, Jesus never criticizes them. Again, like I'm taking that, that traditional story about what Christianity is, and in my mind, it's like televangelism, where it's like, everybody's sinners! <laughs> like, you're a sinner, and you're a sinner. Everyone's going to hell. And Jesus told... <laughs> um, and so, but Jesus, I, in my mind, completely inverts that. The general population of masses, Jesus never goes after. And Don... This is an interesting point, and I'm going to keep thinking about it because I had not ever thought about it in those terms. Even when they are calling for Jesus' crucifixion, it's the crowd. Um, but the crowd is ultimately manipulated by who? The aristocratic um, uh, Herodian uh, scribe Pharisee class who, who manipulates them through popular media. I mean, I, I'm telling you guys... It, they're, they're, the, the connections are, I think, are, are pretty profound to our current moment. Um, but, uh, but Jesus does not go after um, uh, the people who are unclean or are poor, the, the general masses. Joshua, yes? Um, one thing that bothers me about this gospel up until now, well, I guess, is what are we supposed to think about Satan? And what are we supposed to think about all of these demons that are inherent in inhabiting all of these people? I mean, I can see faith healing that, you know, you could look on Jesus as a faith, a successful faith healer, but how are we supposed to integrate this idea of what what is Satan supposed to be? Wow, awesome. I that if, so I, I talked about the kind of formation of this class coming from Cindy's question about two um, uh, mass feedings. Um, uh, Subpart two of that is what happened in our class. Gene Ann was also there. And that was every time we got to demon possession, we went off the rails. 
every time. Me too. I, I'm chief among sinners here. Um, demon possession, I think, is incredibly hard. That is where we are at a great distance from. Um, it's it's a great distance culturally. Um, it's a great distance partly because of um, modernism and our our the the demystification of the world, which in some ways was great. I have a like two COVID vaccines coursing through my veins um, that may have prevented me from dying a couple of weeks ago when I had some mysterious illness. Um, science is great. It also makes um, um, when ancient texts like this talk about um, unclean spirits and demonic possession, very hard to understand. And I am not going to suggest for a second that in, in seven weeks or eight weeks that I'm going to alleviate all of you of your concerns about demon possession in the New Testament. Um, that would be uh, both above my pay grade. Um, also, I, I, I don't think, I'm gonna get to this, I wanted to talk about racism and I'm gonna have to bring it up next week. Um, I think one of the virtues of reading this text closely is that it is a non-Western, non-white, ancient text. Um, about a people group very different from us and their experience of God. And some of that with some learning and even just like not a lot of learning, but just reading and, and seeing us in them will be understandable. And some of that with a little bit of context will be understandable. And some of that won't ever be under understandable. And that's okay. And I think part of the dismantling racism is to fight against colonialism, which in my mind is unless it makes sense to us it can't it's not it's not real or it's not significant i really want to fight against that and there's a temptation in american uh white protestantism to be completely dismissive about i'm not saying Dwayne, you're doing this but there's a temptation for white people to discount this type of language because it's so foreign to us that's part one Part two is that Mark um, writes and thinks in very symbolic terms. So next week, we're going to encounter the first demon-possessed person. And I, and, and I think it's just a very straightforward um, symbolic manifestation of the oppressive power of the religious institution, namely the synagogue. And that the, the demon is just a literal manifestation of this bigger institutional systematic oppression of people. Um, that doesn't work in every case, okay? Other times, it, it really does feel more like something you would see in a horror film. Um, but in chapter 5, I think, is when Jesus crosses, crosses the sea and he encounters legion. Um, um, legion... Uh, everyone who heard that, just like the crook and the hook, um, everyone who had heard that would think um, Roman military occupation. Um, that Mark was not being subtle about um, this person being a representative of an oppressed people from um, a, a colonial military power. So, Dwayne, I, I want to have my cake and eat it too there. Um, both, I don't want to uh, totally demythologize what's happening as demon possession, but also point to where Mark uses very kind of symbolic images to create, uh, uh, to um, 
kind of reveal a larger a larger point. Great question, though. All right, guys, we're at nine o'clock, and I'm a real stickler for holding to times. Um, we did not do nearly as much as I wanted. I want, and I, and tomorrow, I'm, next time, next week, I'm going to set an alarm, fifteen minutes before nine, because I want to end every class in prayer. Again, the point of this, in my mind, is not to gunfire you with information, but to to do a bit of practicing of actual faith and the kind of imagination of, of putting ourselves there, doing a little bit of quiet of meditation, I think is both instructive to what we're trying to learn, but also like a, a good practice as Christians. But we're at nine o'clock, so I'm going to say uh, farewell. I can't. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we have gathered across a very wide distance of places. And yet we have found ourselves here together. Lord, may your word transform us. Transform us to the good. Transform us to make the world more like your kingdom, where justice is justice for every person. God, give us courage and joy. Give us laughter and confidence for the road ahead. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all. This was so much fun for me. I hope it was fun for you all. Um, and uh, I really hope, uh, please come back and let's do it all again next week. And that concludes the question and answer portion of the podcast for this week. Hope you will join us again next week as we keep discerning ways that we might dismantle racism with Jesus as our guide. Peace.